All right, welcome back to the Ottawa Studios of Inside My Canoe Head. Today we are going to talk about hoarding, hoarding and preparedness, hoarding in life, and everything you need to know about it. So grab yourself your favorite beverage. Let's get at it. All right, welcome back to the start of another wonderful week here at Inside Mike Newhead. I'm your host, Dr. D. We are going to talk about hoarding. Why? Well, I tell you, if you're watching the news, or if you're intentionally avoiding the news, and you're watching YouTube, or you're doing anything online, you can't avoid the sense of dread that exists in the world. You can't avoid the sense of a coming calamity, and this is very profitable in the preparedness space. So today we're going to talk about hoarding, what it is, what it's based on, um, what it looks like, and the challenges that it brings to you in the world of preparedness. But first and foremost, we are going to start with the most important question in the world of preparedness. Who is responsible for your outcomes? And that answer is you. And that means even though we love our friends our traditional first responders in the public sector and those in the emergency management field who will do their best to assist us in times of calamity, that their ratio numbers and capability is far less than what the government pretends it to be, putting you in a position where you are going to be responsible for your own outcome. So if you assume that personal responsibility and accept that you are on the first step to adopting a prepared life. Thank you very much for everybody and all of your comments that keep coming in, especially about the last episode on food. That was interesting. A lot of great response to that. Some people thinking I was uh, being a bit over the top about obesity and, and the food consumption and how to eat. The point is that was really simple and I'll revisit it here and then we'll dumb and we'll done and on to the next. Eat real food. I don't care what you eat. It has one ingredient. Nature produced it. Eat it. You'll have a great life. It's really that simple. Okay, so we're going to bury that one now. We're talking about hoarding. So what is hoarding? Pretty simply, it's an act conducted when someone believes that circumstances beyond their control will lead to a shortage of something that they deem essential. It's based on the scarcity principle. The study... The science of economics and behavioral economics is based upon the principle of scarcity. That means there is not enough for to go around for everybody. If there was, you wouldn't have to have governments, you wouldn't have an economic system, you wouldn't have wages, you wouldn't have anything. There would just be enough of everything for everybody. Because we don't have that, we organize our system in an economic sense based upon the scarcity principle, trying to allocate to the best possible we can a fair and just distribution of the resources that exist. What hoarding is based on is the principle of fear. And fear is the most powerful of human emotions. It's useful to many parties. Now, whether this be charlatans on YouTube telling you that the sky is going to fall, Chicken Little's coming, that you got to hoard these 10 items before the government bans them, uh, you know, top 10 lists to buy right now before they're no longer on the store shelves. They show you pictures of very specific instances that happened during supply chain disruptions from the pandemic. 
and then they say, this is your future, get out and buy right now. That's using fear. Something coming in the future that you don't understand that places you in a position where you may have a shortage of something you deem essential and therefore you are incentivized through the use of fear to go out and acquire an outsized portion or sizable amount of said item, right? So fear is really, really powerful. We we saw it a lot uh, in the pandemic, right? So fear is used often by governments uh, for good. And I know that sounds a little weird, but for example, when we don't understand something, when we don't know what's going on, we always t- go to the, f- the most deadly possible outcome. So at the first start of the pandemic, we didn't know the actual percentage death rate. You can call it by many different names, but what percentage of the population that got COVID-19 would die, right? In the beginning, we didn't know. We didn't know the virality and the strength and the um, transmission of this disease, we, of the virus. We, we didn't know. We didn't understand. So the fear that was built was based upon the fact that I could get it. I don't know if I'm going to die and I don't know if I'm going to spread it to everybody around me. So what that did is it's useful in controlling a population. It is very useful in sending out very specific messages why fear exists in the population Canadians where I'm from, we're very compliant population anyhow, but that fear induces a much higher percentage of uh, compliance within the general population. And so that works. But where fear breaks down in the human system is until we understand the threat. Now, research has looked at what that point is and exactly when it is, but it basically in simplistic terms, it's when the target can see the roadmap through the problem they're facing. So as soon as the population began to understand the virus, as soon as the population began to understand that there are very specific targeted demographic groups that are at exceptionally high risk of getting the disease and then of the virus and then becoming significantly ill with it. When we understood that, and if you were in that group, then fear was justified, right? You were at a really high risk. But for the vast majority of the population who was not in that category, we started to see a way through this. And as soon as we did that, we no longer feared getting a virus. We no longer feared the effects of the virus on us in our own simple sense, right? This is not, we're not talking globalist or on a population level experiment, we're talking the fear induced individually. So basically, we started to see um, demands for different things to be done, openings, stopping the shutdowns, all that different stuff. So, but really what happens though, is often is agencies and agents will double down, right? So we saw this in the uh, pandemic when the messaging from not, and I'm not talking the government messaging, I'm talking the government, the messaging from some parts of society was, well, maybe you'll be okay, but maybe you'll kill grandma. Maybe you'll get it and you'll go hurt somebody else. So it was a doubling down on the fear, realizing that the individuals were no longer in fear of the virus, but now we have to keep them in fright and scared. And so fear is a very, very powerful, right? 
uh, and I want to codify this before you all get off, get on your soapboxes and start sending me messages that I'm anti, anti-COVID-19, et cetera. I got inoculated. I got, I got the shots. Uh, the lockdowns worked in certain situations. I'm not anti. I'm just talking about the use and the power of fear. So when you're able to induce fear into a population, you're able to control the population. And the pandemic was a perfect example of that. So now transpose that onto what you're seeing on YouTube on the preparedness side about the state of the world, the coming collapse, the coming collapse of the supply chain, the coming economic collapse, the government collapse, uh, the hoarding of food, um, just for one prime example was the US government apparently banning the shipment of ammunition outside the country that was apparently a hint that they're about to ban the sale of ammunition so it it's a fear inducing move when you induce fear people see scarcity they begin to hoard they see that something out there that they deem essential, and for most people, it's it's not going to be the same, and they move on. So what does this look like in preparedness? Well, the first thing that you often see people hoarding as a result of this uh, catechismic messaging is food, right? Non-perishable freeze-dried food. Now, I was looking at the price of this last night, uh, looking at, uh, and I have a very small stockpile in my in my 90 day stockpile of freeze dries and that's just the mobility option right because it's easy it's light and it's easy and it's simple to move but when you look at the cost per calorie which is for most people in this inflation economic induced world cost per calorie uh is very very important uh when you're thinking mobility obviously you're thinking uh ounce or gram per calorie but normally, because we shelter, our plans are to shelter in place first and foremost, we think about dollars per calorie. And when you talk about freeze-dried, it's really cool. And if you have disgusting amounts of money, you can just go to Costco and order a couple of sleds worth it. It'll cost you about 15 to 17 grand. And you can buy yourself a, a year's worth of food for you and your family. Freeze-dried, it's good for 30 years. You're done, right? But the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, and myself included, probably don't have $17,000 sitting in the bank account with nothing to do. So a lot of people will look at non-perishable food. They will build up a stockpile. And we talk about it here at Inside My Canoe Head and Preparedness Labs Incorporated in our education process that we recommend you keep 14 days. Now, I keep 90 for a whole different set of circumstances that we're going to talk about in an upcoming uh, episode. But 14 days is the standard. That's because... Uh, society's critical infrastructure, when it does go down for 92 to 96% of the time, that critical infrastructure is back up and running within uh, 14 days. So that's why we say 14 days. You don't pull it out of the sky. It's it's based on research. It's based on statistics. That's what we do here at Inside Mike and Newhead. So when you talk about food, we're not talking about those who are looking at cyclical annual canning routines. So people who can or preserve their own food that they grow or purchase over the winter and through the starving months in the spring, they're not hoarding. Those people are growing towards self-sufficiency. It's something completely different. Hoarding is buying a large volume of something based on the scarcity and fear principle, and you are likely not going to consume it, right? You're likely not going to consume and use 
that three tons of toilet paper that you bought and that the store wouldn't let you return post uh, COVID initial lockdown. So when you think about hoarding, we think about food. Another one that happens a lot is ammunition. Now, this is, this is just as important in Canada as it is in the United States of America. We always think of our American brothers and sisters as the one, crazy nuts with the ammunition, right? Thousands and thousands of rounds. You see them on YouTube. I've got 10,000 rounds of 5.56. Five, is this enough? Um, you know, I, I was an army guy, right? I went, into, I went into the fight with 300 rounds. That's it. Yeah, I had an echelon system behind me that could replenish me, but I only went into the fight with 300 rounds. So 10,000 rounds, sure, but it's based upon scarcity, right? It's based upon government operations and that the ability of the government to cease purchasing uh, by the public of ammunition or what we saw for a short period of time a couple of years ago when the U.S. military and the U.S. government have a massive ammunition order from the manufacturers and basically by the price they're paying, they put themselves first. And so we saw a shortage for a long period of time and a number of important calibers uh, of ammunition. This induced the scarcity principle. This induces fear. When you see a shortage of nine millimeter ammunition and your preparedness plan is based upon the the availability and the application of nine millimeter ammunition, you will believe that you are in a position of uh, difficulty. You are in a position where you need to stock up ammunition, right? That alone, and, and I've worked in industry and I spent my military career in supply chain, that is actually used in the supply chain. Companies will intentionally restrict the availability of their product on the market to induce scarcity. So if I want to generate greater sales of nine millimeter, I make nine millimeter less available. And then I blame the government, right? So it's the big bad government, but in fact, it's the ammunition manufacturers who are restricting the distribution. Now, what happens in a lot of these cases is they don't restrict manufacturing. They continue manufacturing the nine millimeter at the same rate. They just warehouse it. Nine millimeter ammunition doesn't go bad, right? I mean, maybe a century later, but it doesn't go bad. So I can run regular production levels time over time, over time, over cycle, but only release 72% of the stock to distribution, causing a scarcity at the end, which means I can jack up the price. I can then have you buying everything and every new shipment that I release gets bought up almost immediately at higher retail prices and everybody wins, both the manufacturer and the distributor and the retailer, except for you, John Q or Jane Q public has to buy ammunition under the scarcity, fear, and at a higher rate. So these are things that are done to induce using scarcity and fear and ammunition. Um, but people also, so why do people want to buy a whole bunch of ammunition? Well, protection fear, self-defense fear. Um, people feel like they are maybe likely in the future under threat of armed intervention by some other party and therefore they have to be ready to defend themselves, right? Again, I go back to my analogy of if you're one person in a house and you have 10,000 rounds, you have a really bad plan, right? Because you're not going to fire that many. Somebody's going to hit your house in a coordinated effort with 
eight to 12 individuals, you may get four of them, but you're done. And you might fire off two magazines doing that, right? The reality of combat, the reality of the real world is differently than the YouTube assumptions that are made. And it's generally not for hunting. So I'm a hunter. So all of you hunters out there who are great stewards of the environment, great stewards of the population and the animal health, right? At most, you're going to take three rounds to take down big game, right? You might miss once. You do a correction on your scope. You hit the animal with the first round, and you do a, 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 another round to make sure that it stays down and then it dies a quick, safe, uh, honorable death, right? Full stop. You harvest, you harvest an elk with three rounds, right? If you have to harvest, if you're even thinking apocalypse and you have to harvest two elk a year to feed your family on top of your other food sources, you need six rounds a year to harvest elk. So you're not hoarding 10,000 rounds of 338 Lapula for your long distance shooting rifle to hunt, right? Because otherwise you're a really bad hunter and you probably shouldn't be out in the bush, right? Literally 100 rounds should last you a lifetime if you're a hunter, right? Other than maybe a little bit of target shooting on the side uh, and zeroing every year. But if you're literally hunting, you need 100 rounds, maybe 200 for your life. That's it. So what challenges does this present to you in the preparedness space? What challenges does hoarding look on that? The first thing is, is it uses a fear principle and it induces Far too much focus on preparedness. I talk about this in a couple of episodes that preparedness is, the intent is for you to rock an incredible life. The intent is for you to chase your dreams and whatever they may be, being an artist, a musician, a carpenter, a plumber, what preparedness does is provide a blanket of insulation against exogenous shocks for which you cannot control. Things as that Marcus Aurelius would say are stoically beyond your control and therefore, you should not worry. You can't worry about things that are beyond your control. You just deal with them when they happen. The idea of having preparedness, it's that buffer. It gives you that little bit. But when you spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about preparedness, thinking about your stockpiles, thinking about whether you're ready for the next calamity, you're too far down the rabbit hole. Preparedness is something that pops up 30 minutes every month right? Inside my canoe head and at our online video course that we now have at preparednesslabs.ca. It's $79 Canadian. Over two hours of videos about how to adopt a prepared life. We talk about it in there that once you write your family preparedness plan, that's really literally going to take you a couple of hours at most to do, time immemorial, you're only going back to that plan once a month for 30 minutes. That's the extent to which preparedness should occupy your life. If you're exceeding that by a great deal, then you're in a rabbit hole and you need to extricate yourself from that, right? You're too far gone. You're too far down that rabbit hole and very much in danger of letting preparedness consume your life. And you can see it at people on YouTube. They have businesses. They're doing all kinds of videos. They're talking about all kinds of things. I'm sitting here telling you the world is not going to come apart. 
we're in an exceptionally disruptive 2020s. And if you understand what Ray Dalio, Peter Zion, and a bunch of other great thinkers talk about, this is the disorder, right? This is the, the decade where the world is reordering countries. Everybody's jockeying for position. And when we emerge in the 2030s, this is what the world will look like for the next 70, 80 years. The superpowers, the struggles, the back and forth. This is all we're doing. The world's not collapsing. The calamity, the end times are not coming. I haven't seen four horsemen in the sky, right? It's not going to happen. So people are using that fear. They're taking the war in the Middle East, the war in Ukraine, the potential war on Taiwan, the economic downturn, this massive potential housing bubble, and they're all bringing it together and trying to present to you a world that's about to come apart at its seams. Society's going to collapse, so hoard. Hoard everything now. Buy what you can while the world is still good, while nobody's paying attention. Because when everybody wakes up, you're not going to be able to get what your family needs. So in other words, if you don't hoard, you are failing your role as the leader of your family. This is why it works. This is why people get addicted to this kind of a pocket talk, this kind of a cataclysmic um, ending games. And then they go down the rabbit hole and they start letting preparedness become a massive, massive part of your life. And the other one is, is financial does not equal prepared. You very, very little money, if none. And I have a, an episode coming, uh, sorry, a couple of, one year ago, one, 1. 1.5 years ago. Anyhow, I'm redoing it in, in the coming days uh, about why preparedness is free. I keep coming back to the subject because adopting a prepared life is free. Being a prepared individual is free. Getting ready for life's calamities is free. It doesn't cost you any money. Now, all the information you need is here at Inside My Canoe Head. It's on our social media feeds. It's on the 210 plus episodes of this podcast that exist. It's all out there, right? The information you need. Now, if you want a summation, sure. We have an ebook that costs $7 Canadian, less than $5 American on Amazon. The link is at preparednesslabs.ca. Skip your next latte, skip your next Dunkin' Donuts coffee, buy yourself a book. It's the same thing. It, it talks about how to adopt a prepared life. It's very, very simple. And it's not about um, spending money. It's not. If people are trying to tell you, you need to spend money to become prepared, like buying supplies, buying equipment, buying these things, um, they're wrong. They're dead wrong. Um, but people fall down that, fall down that. And then because governments tell you, you need to buy something, they create, um, this financial barrier that in fact is not real, right? The, the barrier is created by public policy. Public policy creates a socioeconomic barrier to preparedness. People see the call to buy things and they don't have money. And then they'll tell you, well, I can't become prepared because I can't afford to do it, right? When in fact it's free, but it's the very public policy our government puts out that induces people not to become prepared. It's kind of a perverse outcome to the public policy. And the last thing that I'm going to talk about is your mobility. In the unlikely event that you have to evacuate, and this is based upon uh, your threat profile, and we talk about that in the book and in the course and how to develop and understand your own personal threat profile. So what are you exposed to and natural hazards, right? If you live on a floodplain, 
you can't put five years of supplies in your basement. That is dumb. They will flood. You will lose it all. And then you'll try to get an insurance company to cover it all, right? If you live in the wildland urban interface, you've seen the uh, fires that we've had in Canada and North America this year and in Europe and Spain and Portugal and Greece and in other places, your, your home can burn down, right? So unless you've got a fireproof home, which we can build them perfectly fireproof, um, you're putting all of this stock in one place, right? That becomes very, very difficult. And as well, uh, if you have to evacuate, and you need to take supplies with you and all of your food supplies, your 14 days of food supplies, or if you're like me, your 30, your 90 days of food supplies uh, are all in big, heavy canned food. How are you going to get that into your vehicle and get out in a short period of time? So the summation of this podcast episode is simple. Hoarding is the result of the application of the use of fear and the scarcity principle by somebody who wishes you to make a financial commitment to do something. That's all hoarding is. You're doing it because, or the people you know are doing it because they believe through whatever information they're gathering that there is an upcoming shortage of an item that they deem to be essential and they don't want to be caught without. So just in case they will stockpile 400 AA batteries just in case AA batteries are never made again. Well, the reality of that is slim to nil and slim just left the building. So remember that preparedness is there to support you. It is there to allow you to rock an incredible life, to chase your dreams, to go after everything you want. Preparedness is not something that drags you down consumes your life, don't hoard. There's no requirement to hoard. Every single piece of equipment that you have in your house should mirror a requirement. For example, if you have a bunch of sport equipment, but you play those sports, awesome. If you have a bunch of bushcrafting gear and you actually go out and bushcraft and camp, that's awesome. If you have a bunch of tools in your garage, cause you actually use tools to repair stuff in your handy person, that's awesome. None of that is hoarding. That is all useful things that you will use in your normal life. Hoarding is when you have a bunch of stuff kicking around that you're not actually going to use in your regular life and that you have bought because of fear. And then that puts you in a difficult financial position, not preparedness. It is fear that drives some of our worst purchasing decisions we have out there. The scarcity principle used in economics and the principle founding of economics is leveraged across the spectrum to get you to believe that if you don't get it now, if you don't buy it now, it'll be higher priced. It's going out of stock. It's the last time. Oh my Lord, the star is on it at Costco. It's never coming back. You, We've all seen it. We've all been there. So avoid hoarding, understand what it is, and don't be that preparedness individual that hoards everything under the sun for the just in case for the big bad day when the government collapses, the economics comes down, the economy's down, supply chain ends, and we have global war. Because my friends, that's unfortunately for those that want it, that's not going to happen. The 2020s are going to be disruptive. Be prepared to navigate numerous exogenous shocks that you won't see coming, but that's what you need. 
That's what you can do when you adopt a prepared life. So thanks for joining us this week at Inside Mike Newhead. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Drop us a line at jeff at preparednesslabs.ca. Drop over and comment on our website at preparednesslabs.ca. We have everything that we do think. There's a free download there for a little primer on how to adopt a prepared life. A three-page download is there. Uh, for you, free of charge. Everything we do here at Inside My Canoe Head is free of charge and always will be. And if you're looking to invest a little bit of money in yourself, we have options for that too. So take care, stay safe, and we'll see you on Friday. 